Welcome to Attenuation, a weekly podcast where two friends come together to drink beer, discuss beer styles and trends, and just generally ruminate on the meaning of life, aka beer. If you enjoy your time with us, we invite you to become a weekly listener and subscribe to the podcast. Without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of Attenuation, a beer podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm joined by my best friend since eighth grade, Stephen. Hello. Good day, sir. How are you doing? Fantastic. You ready to drink some beer? Yeah, I'm excited. I feel like this should have been the, the episode where I drink a 14% stout since I have tomorrow off. That would have been much smarter <laughs> than what you did. It was tough to get up the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was. That's awesome. Okay, well, today we have a good topic. Since we did a silly episode last week with our quizzes, um, we're going to do a deep dive into IPA. Only serious discussion now. Yes, very serious. But, of course, before we get to the main topic, we have to do our favorite part of the podcast, which is drinking beer. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to introduce my beer, give some nose notes, and then I'll pass it over to Stephen to do the same. So excited for this episode. <laughs> do you have a good IPA picked so up? So excited. Uh, I think so. Okay, cool. I do. So I have a local favorite. This is um, Blue Note, which is a local brewery to us. They're double IPA. It's Blood on the Tracks. And this is a Blood Orange IPA. It's 8.2% and 80 IBU. This is a favorite of mine. It's like a Woodland flagship. It really is. At this point. Yeah, so it pours. It's actually quite orange and amber in color. And then it has a really active head. A little semi-lacing. This is a pretty beer. On the nose, it's just like fresh oranges, orange rind, uh, a little multi note, but the yeah, orange is dominating. And you get a little bit of hop dink, but yeah, you just get this like array of orange smells. It's quite lovely. So, what awesome. are you drinking today, sir? Well, uh, I am drinking this is a new IPA from Sierra Nevada. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I figured I'd go OG in the uh, IPA breweries at least, but this is a new one from them. It's called Powder Day IPA. I have not heard of this. 7.7%. It says it's a double dry hopped IPA. Oh, it says it'll have notes of citrus, stone fruit, and melon. I always like IPAs that have melon notes. Mm -hmm. I'm also pouring this into my Russian River glass. Perfection. Trying to just name drop all the... Early IPA. Yeah, as a precursor to the episode, or the main topic. Okay, so first, uh, the beer is clear, a nice foamy head on top. It's kind of your classic IPA color, just a hint of kind of amber to the kind of golden orange color. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like I was saying, influenced by you, I'm, I'm getting a little, like, for sure, some melon on the nose. Some, like, sweet honey, or maybe, like, grapefruit. Yeah, just citrus, a lot of like bright citrus, some melon, and uh, definitely like a uh, like a honey sweetness to the aroma. Nice. Well, cheers. Cheers. Okay. Well, this one's as good as ever. It's a uh, <laughs> like a very sweet. It's a. It's. A, I always kind of forget how sweet it is, but the it has like a very sweet malt entrance, and then you get sweet blood orange, almost like marmalade or like orange candy. And then it kind of transitions into bitter orange rind and grapefruit. So the you that 80 IBU comes in like after the sweet it's a sweet entrance, and then it has a long finish that's kind of like astringent and like dries out your your mouth a little bit. So 
it's really good. And then it just makes you want to take another sip. Nice. And and then it's eight percent. So before you know it, you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, I feel so, like this the standard I, IPA now is just seven eight percent. Yeah, it's this this beer is well it'll sneak up on you, so you got to be careful. <laughs> but yeah, definitely thumbs up for me. Awesome. Yeah, that one's gonna be that's one of those always in your fridge for you at least. <laughs> yeah, easy to get and really nice to drink. Awesome. Mine is very good too. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that Sierra Nevada made a great IPA. This is, I think, we'll talk more about styles of IPA and West Coast versus East Coast and that kind of thing, but definitely a little bit more on the West Coast style. But I think with the dry hopping, it helps it to be a little bit more fruit forward. So I'm getting a lot of citrus, uh, some of that melon rind bitterness, some peach notes as well. Interesting. Um, Yeah, but also some very nice pine, subtle, dank, resinous flavors towards the end but a really nice like sweet caramel backbone biscuity backbone oh another thing too is that it's really clean and light bodied like amid all those like hot flavors and and uh maltiness it's like almost drinks like a lager like it's very crispy and clean and light bodied so it's a really nice beer but it's funny drinking this and I don't drink a lot of IPAs lately, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited about this episode and excited to drink an IPA on the podcast, because I kind of forget how much I just love hoppy beers. <laughs> and my evolution with hoppy beers is crazy, because drinking this, I can think back into my early days of beer drinking and imagining how much I would have not liked this beer. <laughs> yeah, you would have hated it. <laughs> Like, I just can't even imagine. I just know. I know I would have hated it because I drank beers like this that was like, how is this? Jason, how do you like this? Why, why <laughs> and now like you love and, it. And now to be able to fully appreciate it and like to drink it is kind of crazy. Yeah. Like once it clicks over in your brain, then you start craving it. And if you haven't like had an IPA, like you said, for a long time, you forget like, oh, I am like addicted to this flavor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember, I almost distinctly remember the moment when, like, the it first time. It clicked over? I, yeah, the first time I ever thought, man, I want a hoppy beer. <laughs> like, oh, I, I st- I'm starting to understand why people like this. And and as you'll see, we'll kind of talk about that, too. It, it sort of happened to everybody, right? It happened to the yeah, beer drinking exactly. world. So. And it, they had to be taken, kicking and screaming the whole way. <laughs> yeah. So would you give that one a thumbs up? Yes. Yeah, I okay, really I gotta like go, it. I gotta go find it because I'm sure you can. They must. It must be by me, but I'm, I've never yeah. seen it. But yeah, yeah. Powder Day IPA. Yeah, it's I 7. like 7%. the. Yeah, see, like I said, it's like that's standard now. But yeah, I really like this crisp, clean body. Drinks really easy. Yeah. All right, I'll go find some and pick them up. Maybe I'll drink it in a future episode soon. All right, so two thumbs up. We're off to a good start. Mm-hmm. I will say too, that was probably the hardest decision I've ever had to make. <laughs> Is what of, what IPA to drink on the podcast? Do you have a bunch just, of other ones in the fridge right now? Well, no, I was just kind of like looking at the store and oh, okay. deciding which one to buy, and I just like it took me so long. I was like, should I drink something I've had before? Should I drink something new? That's you know, that's kind of dangerous. Maybe I won't like it. I wanted I wanted to like it. <laughs> Important question: Did you go by yourself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way I can go beer shopping because. <laughs> If there's any other human with me, actually, we could go together. Yeah, they yeah will, for sure. They will get annoyed that 
I'm going to stand there for like 30 minutes and cross-reference like 20 things on my phone before I pick. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Just like, pick oh, one. what is that? Exactly. What's this brewery? Huh? So, yeah, I have What's to this sure. rated on beer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so next, I think we both have a postscript. Great. I have one and you have one. So mine is Flintstones Vitamins. Oh, yeah. And you know what the answer is? We did need some follow-up on that. We did, because I was curious, <laughs> like, why are Flintstones vitamins? Like, one, why is it based off a TV show? And two, why is it so popular? But the answer, which is the answer to so many things, is mar- marketing. marketing. Um, yeah, so it was around in the 60s. There is a vitamin company called Miles Laboratory. And they vitamins were like a super high margin thing to sell. So the, they wanted to sell them. Because you can make a lot of money on it. And they were getting popular. So they came out with a one-a-day label. It's a chewable vitamin for kids called Chocks. <laughs> so you could imagine, I don't know, that that yeah. doesn't have that doesn't even sound that good. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds terrible. like sounds like dog food or something. I don't know. I mean I can see how like uh you know, like the vitamins the way they were, they were kind of chalky. Yeah, but it's not like appetizing. But like why would you yeah. So simultaneously Flintstones is on TV. And then I learned a lot about Flintstones, too. I think they thought it was going to be, like, they wanted to target it towards, like, adults. But for whatever reason, kids just, like, latched onto it. Kids were, like, obsessed with the Flintstones, apparently. I don't know. I guess there's dinosaurs in it. Well, but not really. I don't know. Anyways. I wonder when that show, like, um, when what was the airtime? You know, like, was it, it wasn't. Oh. I assume it wasn't, like, Saturday morning. If they, I wonder if it was, like, a primetime show or something. Yeah, I don't know. That's Strange. a really good question. But anyways, it really resonated with kids for some reason and so they partnered and basically made flintstones vitamin i guess it makes sense they just like latched onto what was popular at the time but the weird thing is like the staying power of it because flintstones vitamins are like still a thing yeah <laughs> and they kind of credit that to like they had some really good marketing so do you remember those ads where they were like they uh <laughs> we are flintstones kids yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. like 10 million strong and growing (laughs) and like those that jingle was i don't know just so they're still living on nostalgia i guess surviving on nostalgia at this point i assume i don't know how sales of flintstone vitamins are but (laughs) they still exist right so yeah so i guess it wasn't that mysterious like it was popular and yeah and they want to target kids and kids like this thing so and it kind of said like they've continued that theme like i guess there's spongebob squarepants characters Mm, okay yeah vitamins so yeah my kids have uh frozen character vitamins there you go (laughs) just marketing it wasn't a deeper mystery because it matters you know (laughs) it matters what shape the gummies are in when you eat them when you're eight it does yeah that's true it was funny when we mentioned this last episode and we said oh we should postscript this i did look it up and i came across this one controversy with the flintstones vitamins is that almost every flintstone character even like the bizarre side characters got a vitamin at one point or another but betty didn't get a vitamin she never got a vitamin what isn't she like one of the main characters yeah, but apparently they said her waist was too thin <laughs> and the vitamin like kept breaking at that waist point. Oh my gosh. And then the other thing was that they said she was basically indistinguishable from Wilma. Okay. So like why have a Betty and a Wilma vitamin <laughs> when you could just have the Wilma vitamin? <laughs> Rude. Yeah. <laughs> 
So apparently in 1994, they made that Flintstones movie, the live action Flintstone movie. Oh, gosh. And they... Uh, Rosie O'Donnell played Betty in that movie, and anyway, she like brought that like to the attention of the nation that there was no Betty vitamin, and some marketing agency seized on that opportunity and made like they set up voting booths in malls, and they had a one eight hundred number to see if like customers really wanted to have a Betty vitamin. There was enough support, at least, for the Betty Vitamin, so they, they finally made it in 1995. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is quite the history of the Flintstones vitamins. Also, I'm looking at screenshots from this Flintstones movie. This looks yeah. like nightmare fuel. I want to watch this. Like, <laughs> Oh, what? the live action? Yes. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, What's his name? Jo- uh, John Goodman? Is it John Goodman? Who's yeah, the... Yeah, John Goodman. John Goodman. Rick Moranis. Rick, Rick Moranis. Yeah. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Elizabeth Perkins. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I never saw it, but the costuming <laughs> is hilarious. These look like... What is this, 1994? Uh-huh. They look like the super cheap, crappy costumes you would buy at one of those costume Halloween shops that only... It, like picks a location in a defunct mall for like a month and yeah, then yeah. they just vanish for yeah. another 11 months yeah. that's the cost that's what the costumes look like yeah what are those halloween stores called i don't remember i can't remember either <laughs> i gotta watch this movie but yeah i know what you're talking about <laughs> all right yeah that's you- a great movie oh i'm sure it's excellent <laughs> Anyways, okay, that was my postscript. What's your postscript? Okay, my postscript. Oh, we mentioned mezcal versus tequila, and what's the difference? I don't even know why we were talking about that. And I actually ended up being correct. I was right. I don't know how. But basically, all tequilas are mezcals, but all mezcals are not all tequilas. So um, mezcal is a general term for any agave-based liquor. Okay. And then tequila is a specific agave-based, like a specific method. But if you get something that's just called a mezcal, it tends to be earthier and smokier because they make it underground and they like they like cook it underground. So it gets this like smokiness to it. Really? Yeah. So anyway, that's the main difference is that mezcals tend to be a lot smokier so some people don't like that but some people really really do like that so. that sounds good i want a mezcal now yeah cool all right so, i'm gonna try to find one i didn't do a super deep dive into that but no that makes sense though basically the main point they're both agave based liquors tequila is just a little bit more of a specific kind mezcal is kind of a general term okay nice i'm gonna look for a mezcal all right cool <sighs> we did our postscripts yep we didn't leave anybody hanging no, That's the whole point of the postscript segment. We talked well, about one, something I didn't want to like just not come back to it if we left questions. So Well, it's one of the things that annoys me when I listen to a podcast and they like they're on some topic and then they they like shift onto a tangent and they never return. It always it, dri- it drives me insane. So I wanted to correct that. I'm with that. you. I'm I, so with you on that. We had to correct it. That's why we do the postscripts. And then we listen to the episode and make sure we don't we're not Yeah committing that grievous grievous sin against yeah. our listeners the whole time i'm editing <laughs> i make notes you know like oh we need to revisit that or we need to we need to postscript that nice or we said we would postscript that so we have oh, to 
Oh, the broken <laughs> promise. That's the worst. Yeah. So. Okay. Are you ready to roll onto the main topic? I'm ready. I'm so deep, ready. Deep so much, so much information. I'm ready. I'm ready to learn. All right. So IPA. Where do we what even is, start? What did we learn that that stands for last week on the beer quiz? <laughs> India Pale Ale. Yeah. That was one of the beer quiz questions. Yeah, that was the easy one. <laughs> so why is it called India Pale Ale, Jason? Well... I got so I can't decide because I did a lot of research and I the romanticized story, which I still I want to believe, but I'm not sure exactly how true it is, is that when they were shipping beer to India, they realized because it was a long voyage and there's a lot of like temperature changes, hops are a wonderful preservative. So if you want the beer to last and make it there, you could add more hops, thus preserving the beer better, but also changing the flavor of the beer a lot. So the romanticized story is that's how they had to make it to get us to go to India and then people got used to the way that tasted and then there was like market demand for that because they got used to it even though it was just a preservative effect they started to crave that extra hop flavor so how true is that <laughs> yeah so i mean it seems like from what i'm reading is they were already transporting a lot of beer to India Right, they were exporting beer to India, uh, mainly English porter. That was the main style coming out of England at the time. So they were successfully transporting porter over that distance. One of the main issues, though, when you are going from England to India is that you the water you have to cross because you have to go around the, um, the Horn of Africa. You are dropping down below the equator, and now you're in much colder water if you go over the uh, across the Pacific to the United States, the water temperature is a lot more, it's less variable, right? So you have the same water temperature across the whole ocean. Whereas this trip, you had a lot of temperature fluctuation. Okay. I think what happened is with the pale ale, the British pale ale that they were ex- also exporting along with the porter, uh, was a little less stable in terms of all those temp, you know, surviving those multiple temperature changes and not having something like a a wild Brettanomyces yeast infecting and overtaking the beer. So I think the multiple hop additions. Uh, it sounds like that's a legitimate reason for the extra hops, uh, and maybe just the porter was a little bit more stable in terms of surviving the trip, but that British pale was not. So. They learned pretty quickly that if they overhopped the beer, that it could make the trip more successfully. So, so I guess continue to believe the romanticized version. Yeah, I think so. Nice, I like that. <laughs> I think what's most romanticized is that they a lot of credit goes to this man named George Hodgson, who had a brewery in England, who was brewing this India Pale Ale, and or I should say this heavily hopped Pale Ale. And sending it overseas and he kind of dominated the market but what they don't tell you is that they already knew that they needed to heavily hop this beer to get it to survive the trip long before george hodson like adopted that technique but his brewery was super close to the docks and you know what do they say about real estate location 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 and uh he just because of his location and ease of transport to the docks he sort of became the number one exporter the biggest exporter of this heavily hopped pale ale which came to become 
known as the India Pale Ale. But Indians didn't drink it. (laughs) I also read that in my research (laughs) that there was never like a booming market for it. They said even at the height of export, they were shipping about 10,000 barrels a year. Meanwhile, they're shipping 60,000 barrels a year to North America. So that part maybe is a little romanticized. Well, I guess the fact that it was a that was the birth of a style, no matter how sort of unpopular it was at the time. But it sounds like they in like early, or I guess I should say like mid 1800s, 1840 was when they really started to like market this beer style in an effort to try to sell more of it and make it like it was something you know instead of just like oh we just overhopped this beer to make sure it gets there unspoiled. Like, right. oh, no, this is how it should taste. This is how we want it to taste. This is fancy beer. Not like that porter. <laughs> yeah, it said they were marketing made it popular in England. So they're kind of playing on that sense of romance and adventure. Like, you know, this is the beer that's traveling. Yeah, traveling yeah, to India. To exotic places. And that's what they drink there. And don't you want to be cool and global? <laughs> So awesome. it's a lot like the Flintstones vitamins. It came down to clever marketing. <laughs> so uh, I guess it would be somewhat good to like kind of go back and just talk briefly. I mean, you have this beer style called the British Pale Ale. Yes. And um, we won't talk about this too much other than it, this beer was not that good. I mean, it was kind of this like it, it's much more sort of maltier and more mineral than what we think of as a, in a pale on IPA, probably due to the water that they use. But just this sort of this like very earthy, minerally, and then it had these malt flavors and the hops were, um, you know, for a little bit of flavor, a little bit of bitterness. But that that was it. And so the British the British pale ale style is still a style that like a few American breweries make. I don't know if a lot of them make them very well, uh, but it's just not a very popular style still, you know, in the in the modern craft beer world. But um, but it gave gave birth to the now IPA. So. Yeah, and then what's cool is, and I don't know if I'm jumping too much ahead, but the British IPA versus North American IPA like diverged. Which I mean, we've seen this a lot when we've done our deep dives. Is like a popular will get a, a style will get popular, and then it will start spreading. But like every country or region it goes to, kind of puts like their own spin on it. So it eventually almost diverges into something completely different. And they were talking about British IPA was versus like what would eventually become American IPA is less hoppy and more malty. And it was also lower alcohol. And then it really got weird like during the world wars because there was like, you know, supply shortages and stuff like that. So it got a lot weaker. It almost reverted all the way back to becoming just pale ale. So another common theme we see with the, it's not a you can't be a you can't be a deep dive uh, style and not like almost get eradicated <laughs> <laughs> due to the world wars basically. due to like world wars, world wars or, or prohibition yeah. Yeah. yeah well yeah and then prohibition also in the u.s almost killed the ipa as well because it kind of stopped obviously all alcohol production and then not everything survived that transition so so i don't know did you have more to add between because there's a lot to talk about, like, in modern, like, in the 1990s, you're going to see this, like, revival. Um, yeah. And that's where, like, the modern comes. But, but 
Do you have more to talk about in that intermediary period? So there were hoppy pale ales pre-prohibition in the United States. I mean, obviously they were getting the British pale ale exported to them, uh, but there were definitely some pre-prohibition, what you would call IPAs. There was only one that survived prohibition, and that one was called Ballantine IPA from Ballantine and Sons brewery and it's sold into the like mid to late 19th century 19 i can't remember when it last when they went out of business but there was one ipa pre-prohibition ipa that made it through and that was it that's insane kind of crazy yeah only one example of that style survived prohibition and they didn't even survive very long so but it was around long enough for um fritz maytag with anchor brewing to know of the style and to know how to brew it so that's kind of your bridge the Ballantine IPA was kind of the bridge between the old pre-prohibition beers and the new craft beers. So we have to credit them. There's a, like so many times I feel like a style has gotten down to like one brewery or one person and they like have a valiant stand and then it gets popular again. And then it, <laughs> like then a ton of people make it, but it sounds like they were the bridge across the decade of prohibition. Yeah. That uh, kept the IPA style alive in North America. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So let's talk about Anchor Brewing. Okay. Fritz Maytag. Yep. Genius. <laughs> hero. He had a friend working at Oregon State developing hops, and they had one called Cascade mm. that was a little bit more fruity, a little bit less bitter, a little bit more piney. And when Fritz Maytag found out about this hop, he decided to brew a beer in the style of the Ballantine IPA. Nice. And use a technique called dry hopping that nobody was doing <laughs> and he brewed the liberty ale from ink brewing probably i think you have to say the first modern ipa i think that's safe to say yeah i would agree so you're talking a little bit more bitter mm-hmm. much hoppier more hop aromas and flavors a little bit higher abv than what anyone is used to at the time i think it's kind of crazy to me that this style even could take off I mean, I think if you drink this beer now, it's not hoppy. No, but we're used to it now. But like um, even I think Maytag said himself years later that like the beer has never changed. But the public's acceptance of hop level has completely changed. So a beer that to many people was just way, way too hoppy back then is not hoppy at all. Like it's just it's super mild. Well, you went on that. I think any beer connoisseur has actually been on that journey. It's a microcosm of what the public at large experienced. But there was a day you described it early in the episode where you're like, this beer is disgusting. (laughs) Like (laughs) you would taste the beers I was drinking. You'd be like, how are you drinking? That's so gross. Yeah. But it grows on you. And then you kind of make that transition. So they were kind of having to do that, but on a societal scale of like, it wasn't accepted as like a beer style or like people were like, ooh, I don't like this. So yeah. Well, I think what was funny is that even brewers at the time when they were drinking Liberty Ale or Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, they couldn't believe like they knew what hops smelled like, right? Like they (laughs) knew they just never they had never had that in a like that come forward in the nose and the flavor of a beer before right like I see. kind of using it in sort of the background and with the malts and you know in, in different styles of beer or or you know with like especially with the macro lagers i mean the hop 
are super mild, basically imparting no flavor, almost any, no flavor at all. A little bit right. of like earthiness maybe, but that's about it. So to like work with hops and know what they could smell like and taste like, but then have a beer that really truly expressed all those flavors and aromas, it was blowing people's minds, even people who were brewing for a long time. So I think that's what's cool is that, and like I said, in my own beer journey, like I've had this sort of evolution of like what is a hop. And, and one of the things that kind of helped you too is when you put your hands in them and smelled them right on the Sierra Nevada tour you start yeah. to like gain appreciation for what what it could be and then when you taste that and smell that in the beer like oh okay <laughs> that was the main <laughs> it opens over. your mind mm-hmm. that's when it clicked over for me I think because they have you and I told the story before but if you go on the tour they put a hop in your hand and they have you crush it and then the oil kind of gets all it's sticky it gets all over your hands and then they say you know bring your hands to your face and take like the deepest breath you can take and it's just like oh wow the, just that smell and then you're like yeah. oh okay this is what's in the beer that makes sense <laughs> i understand now yeah so 1980 was okay sorry 1975 was the release of is that right 1975 was the release of liberty ale that sounds about right i think 1980 you're thinking of um so 1980 was sierra nevada pale ale right yeah and but 1975 which is crazy but anyway 1975 liberty ale released 1980, Sierra Nevada brewer Ken Grossman decides to make pale ale with Cascade hops again. And again, probably even, it's kind of funny that he, I don't know if they really called Liberty Ale a style. He just called it Liberty Ale. You know, like they didn't even call it an IPA at the time. So then Sierra Nevada actually gave their name, gave it the pale ale name. Mm-hmm. was by far the hoppiest beer on the shelves at the time commercially available yeah i feel like when you take the tour they give you like the whole history and they say like it, they had a really hard time selling it <laughs> like in the beginning because people were like what is this like yeah. which is crazy well and then Vinny from russian river he brewed blind pig in 1994 so this is 14 years later Mm. so like there's still not a huge market for hoppy beers and that's 14 years later yes this is slow slow very very slow to evolve slow to slow for people to accept these beers but blind pig was a double ipa that beer was like aged on oak chips and dry hopped they continue to hop it for a year (laughs) It is, it is crazy beer. Um, it was 92 IBUs. Yeah, could you imagine? This is what 94. Yeah, this must in... have been like rocket fuel. Like people were probably so confused by this beer. <laughs> well, and then um, their double IPA, which is called their inaugural IPA from Russian River, that was 120 IBUs. Oof. And basically, it was little by little people who had are, were super familiar with Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and then Anchors Liberty Ale. They like found Russian Rivers IPA and they liked it, and they were they kept them afloat. That's the only reason they were able to survive was these <laughs> this small minority but of beer. Those drinkers. were the those were the true beer nerds and beer geeks. Like, right? could you imagine like how obscure it is? There's no Instagram. There's no beer podcast. You just know this brewery makes this like insanely hoppy beer that like 99% of the population would think is disgusting, but you're like obsessed with it. <laughs> and you're just going with all the other regulars, just drinking this weird concoction. And you guys are all just like, yeah, this is the real deal right here. It's really those, awesome. Those guys were punk rock, well, dude. Well, and <laughs> so 
granted i didn't grow up in a household that was drinking beer a lot of my like early memories of commercials on tv and stuff were beer commercials right and so to me like that was beer right so you know i was born in the 80s to grow up in the 80s and 90s and I probably didn't hear about Sierra Nevada Pale Ale until I was 20, 21, 22, right? Like, right. and granted, that's sort of when I started to get into beer drinking, but to like have never seen it, to not be like even faintly familiar with the brand or what that beer tastes like or what it, you know, like what it even represented to craft beer or to beer in general, it's so weird. So there is definitely this like, population of people who are definitely beer nerds drinking this before it was even remotely commercially popular those are the old g's <laughs> so shout out to the old school beer nerds <laughs> yeah. where are you now too. they're probably what they gotta be in their like 50s 60s now yeah they're probably just one generation older than us <laughs> so much cooler too oh well <laughs> That's okay. We're pretty cool, I guess. But but yeah, so like at, at some point once these beers got a little more popular, there were four beers that were standard on every in every tap room, which was uh Racer 5 from Bear Republic. And remember they they first brewed their batch of their first batches of Racer 5 at Rubicon Brewing. Bear Republic used Rubicon's facilities to brew Racer 5. So Okay, that's super cool. Another crazy history. Brew free or die. From 21st Amendment, uh, and then Pliny or Blind Pig from Russian River, and then Big Daddy IPA from Speakeasy were the four sort of mainstays at every bar. So you know what this reminds me of? What's that? Do you know that meme from Harry Potter? It's uh, pro- one of the professors, and she has... Oh, Professor McGonagall. I think I know her. Like... Yes, Professor McGonagall, and she has Harry, Hermione, and um, Ron. And she says, why is it when something happens, it's always you three? <laughs> right okay yeah yes and this totally reminds me of ken grossman fritz maytag and Vinny. like <laughs> everything that happened cool on the west coast with uh craft beer it's the why is it always you three <laughs> usually that meme is uh like why is it always you three and it's california texas and florida Oh, really? That makes a lot of sense, <laughs> like, too. Something crazy happens. Why is it always you three? Yeah. Yes, totally. Totally. Anchor, Russian River, and Sierra Nevada. Yeah. Just doesn't get more OG than those three, for That's sure. so cool. The next sort of evolution from there was the San Diego market. So you had brewers like Stone, Ballast Point, yeah. Green Flash. They started getting into this IPA game in the early 90s. This is the arms race. This is where they started to battle each other for who could make a higher IBU beer. Yeah, I remember this period. So this is like, when I first started getting into craft beer, was like the very end of the arms race. (laughs) Well, you had, you know, Sierra Nevada. It was all about the hops, right? So it was all about your hopping technique and how could you get more flavor or bitterness out of the hops? Uh, Sierra Nevada created their torpedo. Yes. So they were trying to use whole cone hops. So they really thought that they could get more flavor and oils out of the whole cones. But when they tried to hop with whole cones, uh, basically you would have these like a bunch of the cones, like not saturated. Like when you put a whole big load of these hops into the fermenter, uh, they weren't all getting penetrated. So Sierra Nevada created this 
torpedo device where it like uh, it like swirls the beer constantly into the hops down this torpedo of this like long cylindrical device uh so you get tons of contact right you're getting the the beer to like touch. maximum surface area yeah, exactly yeah. so anyway there's just all these techniques and innovation going on over how do you get more hot flavor and how to get more ibus <laughs> Yep. And we see that, right? Torpedo was, or uh, Hoptimum. Hoptimum. Right. Was over 100, I think. Yeah, I swear. Okay, postscript this for next week. Because we both recently drank Hoptimum, which the modern variant is amazing, and I highly recommend it. But it's not 100 IBU. It was like 60 or something, Yeah, and I distinctly remember Hoptimum being over 100 IBU. And I could be wrong, but I'm going to do some research, and I'll I'll report back next week. Because I feel like it was, and now I don't think having super high IBUs in style anymore. So it makes sense that they evolved the recipe, but sure. But there was quite a few IPAs that had over a hundred. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that were like very, it was kind of cool at the time. Like, Oh yeah, we're over a hundred. Like this is so bitter. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know how, if Sculpin has evolved at all, but I remember that beer being pretty bitter. Granted, this is probably when I was like more sensitive to it, but uh, that beer probably would still feel almost too bitter for me unless they've drastically changed the recipe but but stone was the big one stone well and you mentioned green flash they had i don't know if they still brew it but i remember um they had an ipa called palette wrecker that (laughs) (laughs) i feel like had over 100 ipu i'm sure but yeah that was the kind of stuff and they were they're in front of san diego so they were part of that arms race but yeah. that was the kind of stuff they were making, like palate wrecker. Like you know what you're getting in for when they named the beer that. Yeah. So Green Flash, they released their West Coast IPA in 2011, and that was them embracing the term, right? That had not that was not a uh, an established style of beer. That was them saying, hey, this is IPA. And this is the West Coast, and this is how we do it on the West Coast. We go over the top. So this was a higher ABV beer, it was super hoppy, and you know it was about that time, 2010, 2011, that this the idea of a West Coast style IPA became more mainstream. Okay. And it just happens to be the same year that Vinny brewed Blind and the Younger, and within eight hours was completely sold out of it. So that's crazy. People were starting to learn. People were starting to like hops. Well, that that seems like that's kind of when, yeah, the the tide began to turn, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the acceptance was there. Like the there was more of a cultural acceptance of, oh, this is good. We like this. Yeah. And that really fueled to the the agriculture changes in hops because for so many years they had been growing hops for the macro beers, and now you had more and more craft breweries looking for hops and like the next best hop right so everyone's trying to find a fruitier hop hops with certain notes to it uh, more pine more resin whatever it was they were trying to you know manufacture hops phantasm powder yeah (laughs) is that still a thing still a thing all right you know what's funny is i follow i actually follow the company phantasm they're out of new zealand i follow them now on instagram so it's kind of fun because i get to see they they routinely post uh what breweries they're sending their powder to and what beers are that's being used in and stuff so it's kind of cool but yeah it's it's something you actually 
Uh, I recently got a box from Tavor. Very excited about. <laughs> Spent way too much money on craft beer in January. <laughs> You're back on Tavor. He's back on it. <laughs> I have not started a new box since that one. It takes a. It takes something special to pull me back in. To suck so. you back in. The problem is once you start the box, you gotta finish it. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, well, now you gotta add stuff to it, right? Right. Yeah. So it takes one thing, and then I'll add other stuff that's like somewhat exciting, you know. But it's usually one or two things that I'm super excited about. But yeah, I got a tower box, and one of them is I have an Anchorage brew. Okay. Something called It Meant Nothing. They brewed it with phantasm powder. They used a yeast that's supposed to be like super high, or supposed to produce super high thiols, which is what the phantasm powder is supposed to boost, is the thiols. Ah, like, I see. Supply some of the tropical flavors so they're doing they're going from both ends they're trying to <laughs> produce more thiols in the beer and then use the phantasm and put the to boost in. to boost the thiol flavors and aromas so yeah so i'm pretty excited about that they're one going hard <laughs> back into so, a different we're in a different arms race now yep. yeah there's still innovation and, and evolution and and competitive changes right you have to try to make something new or when are we starting our brewery we're only gonna make we're gonna start our flagship is gonna be dry hopped pilsner yeah we're doing dry hop pilsner it's gonna be our flagship okay what are we gonna call it i don't know you're the the creative one (laughs) (laughs) all right i'll think about it so so arms race west coast ipa uh san diego kind of like took over We had our nice Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, nice Liberty Ale, you know, trying to introduce people to hops and San Diego went all crazy about it. But I think that is good, right? Like you really got the world introduced to hops and I think maybe oversaturated them a little bit. Yes. Which I do do feel like there was a time and I guess this isn't as true anymore, but I swear there was a time when you go look at the craft beer section at the store and it would be like 75% IPA. Oh, for sure. And you're just like, oh, man, like what? Yeah. I mean, I it, like IPAs, but come on, guys. Can I get something else? Yeah, it was the first craft style. I think I like other than like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, but like hoppy beers. Yeah, I think you you that was just the first big craft style. So you have to credit IPAs with basically all of modern craft beer, I think. I do feel it's it's kind of the bridge like to where we are now. Yeah, for sure. Well, so uh, the other like sort of notables in this category of early IPA is Lagunitas. Oh, definitely. That that was 1995. Their Lagunitas IPA. We mentioned Stone, but uh, the Stone IPA, their flagship is was 1997. And then Green Flash, West Coast IPA. So those are sort of the three that like really took this into, and of course here in Nevada and, and Liberty, but those are the beers that really took us into modern craft beer, really moved us, moved the needle on, on that. And then I think maybe this Hops Arms Race <laughs> mm-hmm. led us to the New England style IPA. Yeah, I feel like that was well, I know I can't speak on this with authority. We should do we should do that transition as an episode, but yeah. Yeah. New England think, IPA. Yeah, because I think what certainly what I experienced getting into craft beer at a time when beers were very very hoppy. Mm-hmm. I felt gatekeeped a little bit. Yeah, because the you problem know, because is if I you thought that it like... wasn't approachable. Yeah, if you didn't like, and there's nothing wrong with not liking super hoppy beer, but if you didn't really like that, and but that's like what everybody's drinking, and that's like 75% of the market, 
you do yeah. kind of feel like, oh, there's not really like a spot for me here. Right. And so, well, and, and that kind of like defined my craft beer journey was the fact that I drank a sour at Russian River. Mm-hmm. You know, sanctification or whatever it was and was like oh there's something i like right like, i didn't know there was something i liked which is why i think both the new england ipas and sours are so popular now because it does give someone who doesn't like super hoppy beers a yeah chance, it's a nice a chance to get into the craft beer world right the New England style, this was really started in 2004. Okay. So that's probably kind of the, your transition period between, you know, 2000 to 2010. You still have a lot of this, like, hop wars going on. But in 2004, John Kimmich from Alchemist Brewing in Vermont brewed Hetty Topper. Ooh. Which I always, like... I still haven't still, had. Yeah. yeah like, it's still on my white whale list. And yeah, I always me too. Think, like, oh, yeah, it's, an, it's a super important New England IPA. No, it's the most important. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is popular. It is the OG New England IPA. From every every source, everything I read, this was it. Like, and basically, what you have is he used a different yeast strain. Uh, it's a London ale yeast strain with super low flocculation rates. So instead of the yeast falling down out of the beer when they're done to the bottom, they suspended up in the beer. So that's why you these are called hazy IPAs because they tend to have more things floating around in them. That's because they're completely unfiltered and the, the yeast do not flocculate at a high rate. So they stay up suspended in the beer. I see. Okay. And then the other big change was with the malt bill. They started to use some lighter Pilsner malts as well as flaked oats and a little bit more wheat in their grain bill, which gave you sort of this like smoother, kind of creamier mouthfeel. And then the big thing was the late hop, the later hop additions. So mm. you started to hop later in the boil to give more fruit flavors, less bitterness, and then dry hopping as well. So dry hopping during fermentation. Again, another way to add flavors without bitterness. And the result was a beer with a smoother body, tons of hop flavor and hop aromas with very, very little bitterness. Now you're starting to live in like the 30, 40 IBU world with an IPA. So you can see how that would be more palatable, more yeah, acceptable for more the entry-level beer drinker. And I think they were highlighting other parts. Well, it's interesting because I think in the... You know, originally with the West Coast IPAs, people were really focusing in on the bitter aspect of hops. But then with the New England IPA, it's like, well, there's all these other, you know, you have to use different hops, different hopping styles. But there's all these other flavors that hops can produce. Like, we don't have to be so one-dimensional. And that's kind of what you get in the New England styles. You get all these nice tropical and fruit flavors. And yeah, not and so much of the bitterness. Of the- yeah, and even some of the like grassy, earthy, dank, resiny flavors, you, you can still get more of that too, mm-hmm. but just easier to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, you know, even with all those like resiny, dank flavors, easier to drink without the lingering bitterness. People like them. I like them. It's I still like, trends. I mean, yeah. It's still trendy. I feel like it's very popular. But I mean, I still like West Coast IPAs too, but I like the New England style as well. I like both, so... And for sure, like Moonraker for me. Mm-hmm. Remember that trip? That was yes, just... that was another click moment for you. Like yeah, where and like you were saying, the hops are not one dimensional, right? They're they, I have these like five hazy IPAs in front of me. <laughs> yes. They all, 
And they all tasted different. <laughs> they all tasted different. Yeah. But to realize that you could get such crazy flavors and different flavors from different combinations of hops. But to, but to be able to enjoy them and to appreciate them in a beer that was not killing me or <laughs> turning me off. Yeah. was super important. So yeah. I'm like the epitome of the... <laughs> Just follow my craft beer journey for... Yeah, you have a good template. Is, yeah. <laughs> Because now you like barrel-aged stouts and West Coast IPAs, but, like, it was a long journey to get you there, Stephen. Yeah, it's still a weird journey to me. (laughs) Like I said, I've had so few hoppy beers lately. Like, I drink a lot of sours. I drink actually probably more stouts now than IPAs, which is super weird to me. (laughs) Ultimate corruption. (laughs) So it's just sort of weird because I think I would have to say that the IPA is certainly the new england ipa but ipas in general are definitely trending i don't know i don't think they ever won't be i feel like their popularity is i mean maybe we'll live to eat our words but it's dominant like it's been dominant since the craft beer revival in the u.s i don't think it's going anywhere no for sure i mean i don't know if any styles are going anywhere now i mean that's true except for the brute ipa but <laughs> I liked the brute IPA too. <laughs> well, and what's funny is that, like if you really like, there's a lot of variations of the IPA style now. You know, we're talking talking about sort of constant innovation and evolution. One thing I'm seeing now is the cold IPA. Wait, what IPA? Which, cold IPA. Oh, okay. What is that? What does that entail? Uh, it's usually just brewed with a some sort of hybrid yeast or lager yeast and cold lagered. Uh, okay. So kind of a hoppy lager, I guess. But um, I don't know. There's, uh, It's kind of the same with like a sour, right? Like there's sour IPAs and there are hoppy sours, right? And, and mm. it would seem like that would be the same thing, right? If you sour a hoppy beer or if you hop a sour beer, <laughs> Right? Like, what's the difference? Right. Um, but there is. But they're different, there, yeah. There is a difference. There's a huge difference. I don't know if I can tell you what the difference is, other than sort of what the, like, the body of the beer. I think that's the thing is, like, the base of the beer has a, is a very dominant influence. And then yeah. if you hop it, if you dry hop, like, uh, sour beer or whatever, or, you know, it's just, it's still sour at its heart. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Where you take an IPA and you sour it. Anyway, I don't, I've never had a sour IPA I liked. I don't think there are very many breweries that do that style. It's hard Um, to pull off. There was one I did like. I can't remember what it was called. It might be called Sour IPA. (laughs) It is. The new Belgian one is not bad. This is called Sour sour IPA. Okay, I haven't had that one. Yeah, see if you could find that one. That's pretty new, I think. Yeah, it might be. It's it's still on their website, so I think they do still make it. Yeah. That's newer for them, I think. But yeah, yeah. I, I did see that recently. Mm. You liked that one? If I remember correctly, I like this one. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it's not a style that's um, very common. <laughs> no. You also, there's Brett IPAs, right? So brewed with Brettanomyces yeast. Same okay. kind of thing. Yeah. A little bit more like a little funky mixing, the sort of weird, funky kind of farmhouse melony flavors with the ipa the hops it can work i think it's hard to get right but you can definitely do it oh we also can't fail to mention the milkshake ipa oh yes totally that's a newer lactose yeah yeah lactose and usually heavily fruited as well Mm -hmm. so some lactose and fruit puree 
trying to make it smoothier and <laughs> smoothier, smoother. <laughs> I guess smoother and smoothier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> and sweeter, for sure. Definitely sweeter. Lots of sweetness. Yeah. Not a fan of the milkshake. I, I was going to say, you don't like those. No. I think I, I like them more than you do. But I understand why. I understand your reservations. I mean, look, I... <laughs> As much as I say I'm going to swear off the smoothie IP or the smoothie sours, it's not gonna happen ever. Whenever I see these like heavily fruited smoothie sours, I can't resist. I don't know why. I don't even usually I I'm usually fifty fifty on whether I like it or not. Like about half of them I like, half of them I don't. Yeah. And that's not a very good rate. <laughs> yeah, fifty fifty. Coin flip. Yeah, one out of the two I'm gonna hate, but so you like the I, lact- you will risk it for the lactose sour, the coin flip, but you won't do the milkshake IPA. No, <laughs> I I don't know if I've ever liked one of those. Oh, okay, so you're it's zero percent milkshake. Yeah, IPA. so at least fifty percent I know on the smoothie sour, and I just can't resist sometimes. Like with the fruit combinations that are in there, I'm like, oh yeah, that's gonna be so good. Right. <laughs> And then you're disappointed. And then, yeah, sometimes I'm, like, so happy. Sometimes I'm super excited. Uh, super disappointed, yeah. Nice. They get, they get weird sometimes. Well, it's, like, where we're at now is, like, boundary pushing continues, so. Yeah. So yeah, the, IPAs, the milkshake IPA, not good. Not good. You, think you like fun? it? Well, I definitely have, like, a ratio, I would say. I think I'm at a coin flip on them, too. Yeah. But I do feel like I, I've had some that I do like. So the you know what the problem is, is? What's that? You know what the problem is? So, like, with the smoothie sours, you have, like, breweries that almost exclusively do those, right? Like, it's all smoothie sours or have these heavily, you know, like, 450 North and Wiley Roots Brewing. And there's a bunch of breweries that, well, I shouldn't say 903. They do a lot of other styles, too. But 903 in Dallas, they do a lot of smoothie sours. So it's like their thing. And they perfected it or at least, you know, gotten to a point where they make a lot of good ones. Uh, Drecker, KCBC. Anyway, multiple breweries are doing that. But like milkshake IPAs, like there's no like brewery that specializes in milkshake IPAs. I see. Yeah. So like nobody's, you know, nobody's spending enough time making really good ones. Okay. Is that fair? <laughs> I mean, I kind of believe you. I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't know enough about that. But yeah. to like definitively say there might be some like obscure brewery that does like really good milkshake IPAs that we don't have access to. But are Maybe. they even, <laughs> are they even still popular? I mean, I don't think they've ever really been popular. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I really it's hate true. milkshake IPAs. I feel I like mean, they were popular for a little while. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Steven. I'm not trying to hate on the milkshake IPA. You are hating on the milkshake IPA. You're it's hating not like on the it. brew IPA, okay? That I'll hate on all day. You're hating on the milkshake mm. IPA. That's okay. You know, I just needed a, I need a good one. All right, we're going to find you a good one. That's the goal. I'm going to drink the top five milkshake IPAs on yes. Beer Advocate. <laughs> In fact, if you have a suggestion for a milkshake IPA, look at this. Look at this dovetail. You should email us at attenuation. No, contact.attenuation at gmail.com. Or, even better, follow us at, on Instagram at attenuation.podcast. Oh, did we mention that we got, we're got we over 100 followers now? Triple digits, Instagram? baby. Triple digits. <sighs> so good. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. I need to interrupt this. Interrupt our PSA. So, apparently, Tired Hands Brewing in Pennsylvania 
They have perfected the milkshake IPA. Do they have the number one? They have multiple beer advocate, multiple milkshake IPAs on beer advocate that score in the upper 90s. So there was a, there was indeed an obscure brewery that specializes in the milkshake IPAs that we just didn't know about. Yes. <laughs> See, I was right. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. How that's possible. Not that you could be right. That's possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is this brewery called? We got to get some there. Tired milk. hands. Tired hands. All right. In Pennsylvania, I'll contact them. See if they'll send me a box of their milkshake IPAs. Do it. We have a hundred Instagram followers. Yeah. We're a hot commodity now. Yeah, we're oh, it's, and one of the other highest rated ones is a collaboration with Tired Hands and there you go. Omnipolo brewing. So okay. tired, hands. tired Hands, they've got their they know they know their uh, milkshake IPAs. All right, we gotta get our hands on one of those. Definitely. Okay, sorry I interrupted your whole end of the episode spiel for that. Well, I just I was starting to wrap it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we get us out of here. I think we're good. We're, we went long today. Um, but yeah, it's it was a good fall. IPAs have taken quite a journey from their romantic history all the way out to where they are today. Important style, though, man. Good episode. Good deep dive. Yeah. So yeah, I mentioned how you can get a hold of us. So we're going to wrap it, I guess. Yeah. So that yeah, was wrap episode, it. <laughs> episode 46 of Attenuation, a beer podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm joined by my best friend since eighth grade, Stephen. That's me. And we are saying cheers, and we'll see you next week for episode 47. All right, cheers, buddy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Attenuation, a beer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram or Facebook for more fun content. Catch you next week. Cheers.